0: Good morning, it's Thursday the 15th of February and this is Govind Rajatiraj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. And yes, we are halfway through the second month of 2024. Our top stories and themes for the day, Indian markets beat back Wall Street blues on Wednesday set to rise further. Global oil supplies to satisfy demand and keep prices in check, says the IEA. India's debt markets are brimming with interest, what's going on? And $1,200 foldable phones are flying off the shelves in India, but many other segments are slowing.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj.
0: Indian markets beat back Wall Street blues. Well, let's start with Wall Street. U.S. stock futures were higher on Wednesday after the Dow Jones Industrial Average posted its biggest decline since March 2023. The 30-stock Dow Jones on Tuesday fell about 1.3% for its worst day since March 2023, while the S&P 500 lost 1.3%, too, and the Nasdaq Composite fell 1.8%. All of this was thanks to hotter than anticipated inflation leading traders to conclude that the Federal Reserve may not cut interest rates as early as they had hoped and have been hoping for a while as we've been updating you. Which brings us to India because lower Federal Reserve rates, as we know, means more capital flows into markets like India. Indian markets opened weak on the back of that Wall Street blues and then Asian markets blues but rebounded sharply with the BSE Sensex index closing 268 points higher at 71,823 and the Sensex recovered almost 1,000 points from its intraday low, while the Nifty 50 ended up 97 points at 21,840. The horror story on Wall Street on Tuesday was that right company Lyft, which is similar to Uber but not in India, seeing its stock price rise 60% after it added a zero in its profit margins by mistake. The adjusted earnings margin as a percentage of bookings was only 50 basis points, but was wrongly reported as 500 basis points. Now, in case you're wondering what that metric is, fret not, because the Wall Street Journal also calls it a wonky one, though also acknowledges that it's a closely watched one. The interesting part is actually this. The reason the stock shot up immediately is because computers are doing what is known as algorithmic buying, responding to number announcements. At some point, the humans realized that there was a human error, I'm guessing, and the stock was up about 18% on Wednesday in early trade, so presumably the human traders are somewhat forgiving. Meanwhile, oil prices were holding steady on Wednesday, around $83 a barrel, thanks to, among other things, a robust demand growth from the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries and a sharp decline in US fuel stocks. The OPEC said in its monthly report on Tuesday that global oil demand will rise by about 2.2 million barrels per day in 2024 and by about 1.8 million barrels per day in 2025. Both forecasts were unchanged from last month, according to Reuters. Here is the interesting part, OPEC's 2024 forecast is higher than that of any other forecaster such as the International Energy Agency or IEA and banks including Morgan Stanley. The IEA releases its own monthly oil report on Thursday. So, while Bloomberg reported OPEC's top officials saying on Tuesday that global oil demand is set to expand strongly, a monthly outlook from the group itself revealed limited compliance with the members' latest round of supply cuts. OPEC members include, of course, the big giants like Saudi Arabia. And, importantly, the Paris-based International Energy Agency, or IEA as I just mentioned, has flagged comfortable markets this year, with expected supply growth more than satisfying worldwide consumption. World consumption will increase by about 1.2 million to 1.3 million barrels a day in 2024, a significantly weaker pace than last year as economic growth slows in China and elsewhere, the executive director Fatih Birol of the IEA said. This will also be easily matched by increasing production from the Americas, predominantly the United States, Canada, Brazil and Guyana, according to Bloomberg. This growth is more than enough to meet the global oil demand, Birol told Bloomberg TV, adding that in the absence of major geopolitical turmoil or major extreme weather events, we could expect a rather comfortable oil market and moderate oil price evolution throughout 2024. And that should also give you some sense about how energy prices and therefore oil prices could move in India or not. Speaking about India, Coal India plans to start operations at five new mines and expand capacity at at least 16 new ones to address growing demand for the fuel, its chairman told Reuters on Wednesday. The rise in coal-fired power output is outpacing renewable energy growth for the first time at least since 2019. Record output by Coal India could boost inventories at power plants running on domestic coal by about 16% year-on-year to 40 million tonnes by end March, the chairman of Coal India PM Prasad told Reuters, adding that his firm aims to boost output by more than 7% to a record 838 million tonnes of coal, that is, for the next year that starts April. Debt markets are brimming with interest. What could be the reasons? Foreign institutional investors have largely been selling Indian equities but buying debt, so much so that they've invested over 35,000 crore rupees in the last month and a half. In the last 10 days, they've already invested over 15,000 crore rupees in addition to about 20,000 crore in January, so over 35,000 crore rupees in all, according to a report in PTI quoted earlier. January was the largest inflow since 2017 June. The broader economic indicators are obviously looking better for foreign portfolio investors right now. It also helps that JP Morgan Chase has said in September last year that it will add Indian government bonds to its benchmark emerging market index from June 2024, a move that's expected to attract about 20 to 40 billion dollars in the subsequent 18 to 24 months. So what's driving this interest in Indian bond markets and what are investors specifically gunning for and why? What are the instruments that are on the shopping list and what's the outlook for coming months? I reached out to Arvind Chari, fixed income veteran and now CIO or chief investment officer of the London-based Quantum Advisors, which invests into India from overseas. And I began by asking him what he saw was happening off late.
1: So if you look from the foreign investor perspective, of course, the overriding theme is about the India's bond inclusion. India's will be included in the JP Morgan EM bond index and then on the Bloomberg EM bond index eventually. And that's going to happen from somewhere in June. And there is, of course, build up towards that. A lot of the investors who can take positions now will kind of front run and build positions before the eventual, what we call passive flows, which are linked to the bond index or active flows who want to, you know, because India will become part of the index and they will have to have an exposure. They will come once the inclusion actually happens. We are seeing that play quite a bit and that started somewhere in June or July of last year, where we see we saw monthly flows coming in after about two or two and a half years of outflows in the Indian bond by foreign investors. This year itself, I think we've seen close to about four billion dollars already into the flows into the Indian bond market. So there is the underlying is that aspect of wanting to you know get involved in the as India gets included in the bond index. The broader story also is from a macro perspective in terms of EM as a currency. So if you look at India local currency government bonds that people are buying right now, right. So if you look at the pyramid of where that money is coming from, there are people have fixed income and in that they have EM fixed income, emerging markets fixed income, where they bifurcate between hard currency, which is dollar linked emerging markets and local currency. So and in that they do country specific. Right? So India is in. If a foreign investor is buying an Indian government bond they are taking that allocation of local currency, which is in INR terms, Indian government bond within the EM space. And the, you have seen some increase in that happening from an allocation perspective. As rates have moved up, you've seen flows coming into the emerging markets, both in hard currency and in local currency. And that's a play on the dollar. We can speak about that if you have time, about the broader move of, you know, whether the dollar is weakening or shrinking But the main argument is, of course, bond index and the fact that India has handled macros relatively well, right? both fiscal deficit and inflation, both by the government and by the RBI. And there's a lot more policy certainty in terms of what returns and rates and volatility you can expect from the Indian rupee. So that's the broader context.
0: Right. So, two questions first. One is you said $4 billion has come in into debt in India. So, what's the balance? As in, what are Indian investors investing? That's one. The second is, what are the kind of instruments they're investing? Yes, a large part of it is government bonds, but is all of it? If not, what is the rest?
1: A substantial part of the calendar year data that I gave you about $4 billion is into Indian government bonds. And if you remember, for us to be able to get into the bond index, the RBI launched something called Far securities, which is called fully accessible, root government bonds, where they have no foreigners have no limits. They can have 100 percent. They can own 100 percent of that bond issue. Predictably, those securities are the ones which are going to be included in the index. And what we are seeing is that a large chunk, 70-80 percent of the flows is coming into those government bonds, which will get included in the index. That tells you that it is a largely a play on the eventual bond index inclusion. You're seeing some amount in corporate bonds, but it is frankly material to the amount of money that is coming in the Indian government. bond. This is what foreign investors are doing. And what about domestic? I mean, what's the proportion there roughly at least? If I look at domestic, like mostly into mutual funds, right? Typically the large segments tend to be overnight funds and the liquid funds, which are all broadly institutional, like right? corporates who have cash surpluses if instead are doing FDs, they will park in an overnight fund or a liquid fund. And that that remains the most dominant part of, you know, of the total AUM in, in bond mutual funds. Uh, but over the time, we have seen some increase in, say, money market funds, which tend to have investments up to, say, one year space, up to that space, in the categories which are called medium duration or you know, corporate bond funds or banking and PSA funds. So these are the large pockets of where the AUM lies. And from a flow perspective, we've seen more flows into the overnight liquid, ultra low duration, you know, up to the one year segment as compared to medium and long duration. We haven't seen large flows. It has increased over a period of time, but it is still, I think, retail investors are still substantially doing equities over debt. That's what is coming on. But largely in the front ends of the overnight liquid and ultra slow duration, that's where we more aimed. And we've seen... Retail investors do that, right? They will park that money in that liquid fund and then do what I call a switch switch into equity like or a systematic withdrawal into equity. And that's what even retail investors look
0: So, but all these mutual funds, which are, let's say, hosting all the debt investments from retail investors. So most of that goes back into government bonds or rather goes into government bonds or what's the normal split that you're seeing, at least right now?
1: A substantial amount is not government bonds. So, it will be in the liquid money market, ultra low duration, it will be a mix of commercial paper, certified deposits, and treasury bills. Treasury bills is government. In the short to medium term funds, which are like short duration funds or medium duration funds, it will be a mix between government bonds and corporate bonds. So, PSU corporate bonds or AAA corporate bonds. So, in the mutual fund space, it, it is fairly mixed. The long duration funds, for example, you know the dynamic bond funds or guild funds or long duration funds. They will typically have like a higher share of weighting to government bonds and state development loans currently because of the way they expect that rates will like RBI will cut rates and then yields will fall, and the first always the first to react is the government and you know quasi government space. So in those funds you will be more allocated, but otherwise in the other you know liquid to short medium duration that generally tends to be for accrual. So they're trying to get slightly more spread over the fixed deposit or the government bond. So they will have a higher allocation to CPCD or AAA, AA plus corporates.
0: So as you look ahead, which is maybe first half of 2024, and you said that somewhere in the middle is when we'll see the actual inclusion ahead of which a lot of this buying is happening.
1: So what's your outlook? If I look from a demand supply perspective, that's what drives long-term interest rate. Right? That is very, very favorable to on the demand side. So there is this bond index inclusion which will come about and that will have a demand source. If you look at the government's fiscal trajectory, the gross borrowing for this year and for the next coming two years will be actually same or actually lower than the previous years. Whereas the banking system or the investor base from banks, insurance, mutual funds and foreign investors is actually increasing. So that is one trend where we should see demand supply being a lot favorable. Which would mean that, you know, typically if, if inflation and monetary policy supports, you should see long-term bond yields going down. You've already seen that like the 10-year bond deal kind of peaked somewhere at about 7.5, 7.60 last year and is now trading closer to 7%. That is the expectation of both A, the fiscal deficit being maintained and consolidated. There is expectations of rate cuts from RBI and the demand supply imbalance or supportive demand for bonding. So That's for the longer 10-year yields. If I look at the shorter tenor, which is liquid, money market, you know, early, till the time the RBI eventually cuts rates and looks like although the market was expecting them to cut rates earlier, very similar to what global investors expected the Fed to cut rates. And now there's there's some backup where, you know, where they're not expecting or the Fed is signaling that we are not ready to cut as soon. Even the RBI kind of signaled that with that policy. They didn't even change what we call the stance. They're still saying that they are, withdrawing accommodation that they're not neutral. So that space, which is the shorter, you know, your overnight rates or your CPCD rates or treasury bills, which means your short-term fixed deposit also, that will, I think, remain reasonably attractive. So today you have FDs, you know, fixed deposit that's 7.5% to 8%. You have most of the money market instruments trading between 7 and 8%. And that will remain till the time the RBI actually goes and delivers a rate cut. Because right now, the repo rate is at 6.5%, only when if say, it gets cut to 6%. Although the expectations are there, but I think they've pushed back on that. So for the first six months, it will still be more the longer tenor, where you're looking at long-term bond yields coming down because a fiscal deficit is under control, inflation, core inflation is now below 4%, and there is enough room for the RBI to cut rates, and the markets will price that given the fact that they also expect reasonably good demand for bonds in the coming six months.
0: Right, Arvind. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Folding phones are doing well. Others, not so much. The International Data Corporation, or IDC's Worldwide Quarterly Mobile Phone Tracker, has said that India has shipped about 146 million smartphones in 2023. But that figure, importantly, was just 1% above the previous year. Consumer demand has remained stressed leading to excess inventory levels across channels despite price corrections and schemes by vendors said IDC but the top level figures conceal more than they reveal the average selling price of phones is rising steadily hitting a record $255 that's up 14% year on year in 2023 and As we said, almost a million shipments of foldable phones are out with the average selling price of those phones at $1,236, though that figure itself is marginally down compared to the previous year. Samsung has led the foldable phone market, though its share dropped to 73% in 2023 and other players like Motorola, Techno, OnePlus and Oppo have entered that market, which you may or may not have known. This also marks the third consecutive year of double-digit average selling price growth thanks to obviously growth in the premium segment. As we've discussed earlier on the core report, shipments to online or e-commerce segments are falling, dropping 6% in this case to 49%, while offline, which is physical stores, has grown 8%. Telecom research firm CounterPoint Research Analyst told us earlier that one reason for this is that people prefer to go to stores to buy the more expensive phones because they want to touch and feel it, and more importantly, it was easier to strike finance deals at those physical stores. Among brands, Apple sold about 9 million phones, despite having the highest average selling price of $940 per phone. This was led by previous generation iPhone models and its push for local manufacturing. Its iPhone 13 and 14 were the top five shipped models annually, according to IDC. As a brand, Samsung remained in the leadership position with a record high average selling price of $338, and its Galaxy A14 was the highest shipped device of 2023. I reached out to Navkinder Singh, AVP, Client Devices Research at IDC India, and I began by asking him about the key highlights of 2023 before coming to an outlook for 2024.
2: In the smartphone space in India, we saw around 146 million. That's what, for Indian audience, 14.6 crore. And over and above that, about 61 million, 6.1 crore feature phones, which grew a little bit. The smartphone market view by very modest one person, almost flattish. That's the size of the market. So almost 20 crore in a year.
0: So you're saying feature phones grew more than smartphones in the last year?
2: Yes, but the base is low. It was 6 crore versus, you know, almost 15 crore, 14 and a half, 15 crore. But yes, it grew last year. And what does that indicate? If we see in conjunction, both of things, there is certainly stress in the market. And that's why the, I mean, let me give you the lay of the land, right? So India is the largest, second largest, one in terms of population. We have about 110 crore telco connections. We have about 65 crore smartphone users in India. Now out of 140 crore, 1.4 billion, that's about $650 million. So in 2023 also, we have less than 50% penetration of smartphone media. That's an important point to note. Why I'm insisting on that is because the entire services and the digital stack is based on the assumption that everybody has access to smartphones. You know, Arup say 2, Aadhaar and everything else, right? So in 2023, we have less than 50% penetration. Another 32, 33 crore, about 323, 330 million are feature phone users. Now, what has happened is that this 65 crore is not organically growing too much now. That means the first two smartphone users are not growing too much, which is also abetted by the fact that you see feature phone going up. That means at the bottom of the pyramid, where there's a need for connectivity, they don't have the wherewithal or expertise or they can't afford a smartphone. So that's a concern area because the cheapest smartphone is at 4,500 rupees. And half of these feature phone users, about thirty-two, thirty-three crore, they hold a phone which is less than twelve hundred rupees. So the gap is too huge. Even if we take a feature phone, expensive one, Rs. two thousand rupees to forty-five hundred, it doesn't give. They can't buy a smartphone right now. That's a worrying sign.
0: Going by what you said, under fifty dollars for feature phones and two hundred to four hundred dollars for smartphones, and twelve hundred dollars for the highest smartphone, which is foldables, which seem to be uh, sort of flying off the shelves. So, what
2: are the other trends that you're seeing as you look ahead in 2024, Navkinder? This year, we've already started seeing signs of 5G making inroads in the... So, belly of the beast is still, you know, less than 30,000 in India. You know, belly of the market, about three quarters of the market is still less than 30,000. Yes, there is a lot of sound around premiumization of the market. Apple is doing well at 90 lakh units and an ASP of average selling price of 80000 90000 It's a huge achievement in a market like India where the consumer is very value-conscious. So we've already started seeing 5G making inroads around 10000 which is around uh, $125 to about $250, about $20,000, which is where the mass, all the brands, Vivo's and Oppos and Xiaomi's, Realme's, Lenovo, and everyone's here. Right? So that's an important one because people will start upgrading from below 10,000 to these, so they will start going there. So that was an important thing. And below 10,000 also in festival season, we've seen the offer. So one is 5G, because that's the only lever of growth in the next two, three years, which can pull these from about 15 crore smartphone users, 5G smartphone users. Now we have still about 50 crores for g smartphone users have to buy 5G. So that should happen in 2024, continuing to 2025. Another trend, which is not a trend actually in the past two years, the premiumization or the premium end of the market will keep on doing well. So we expect Apple to keep doing well. With Galaxy S24 series for Samsung, it will start doing well. We've seen OnePlus doing well. Foldables will start being, so to say, democratized around 50000 70000 kind of price point. We've already seen from Lenovo, Motorola. So these are the some of the trends. Offline will be more important again now. People have realized, I mean only so many people have access to online or are serviceable or anxiety about not buying online, right? So offline remains an important almost 50%. Possibly it will grow as well. So these are the three major trends we see this year happening, but it will be, road of recovery will be tough. Can I pick two points from your
0: official statements earlier? So one is that you're saying that inventories are high. And the second is you're also saying that you are projecting that financing schemes are, obviously drive sales. Actually, that's my question. So one is the inventory part. The second is to do with financing schemes. Now, as I can see elsewhere, the ability of people to access financing schemes because of whatever interest rates to other tightening
2: may be less. So do you see that affecting sales as well? So what has happened there is in trusting the smartphone space, many of the brands have taken about themselves, including Bajaj Finance and others, but taken about themselves and tied up with them to actually make the phone more affordable with very unique thing. For example, Samsung has a, a retailer app and a consumer app where the India is a prepaid market, right? We don't have a postpaid, a 95% plus is prepaid. We don't have a legal fallback if somebody runs away with the phone in the contract PD, just like we have telcos and others, right? So what do you do? You try to subsidize the phone, spread it over two years for the consumer, but then consumer can run away, unlock the phone, but no. So what has happened is the moment you take out the sim from the phone. And you don't pay the EMI for that month, or your account is empty, the company is not able to debit the EMI, the phone gets locked. So, these kind of things have really started doing well. And secondly, the upgraders from middle premium about 20, 30,000 rupees to when they have to upgrade to go to 50,000, they might not have money right now. So, they spread it out. So, most of the companies, and this is a chase for the volumes also, they also realize that there is stress of upfront payment. So, we have to spread out the risk for the consumer. but safeguard their own finances also. So this has started doing well. And I think this will continue this year as well. But this is some of the lever which has really worked wonders in the past year or so for the companies.
0: Are you saying that inventories
2: are high and therefore, I mean, they could be pushed back from dealerships and so on? Mobile phone, smartphone dealerships have faced, you know, many more inventory crises in the past, you know, five years or so when there was a of phones in the market. Now, in the last three, four months, what we have seen most brands in the market, they overestimated the demand. There's a real stress of income and inflationary pressure because of which there was slight overestimation on their part to actually stuff the channel. That's why we see online is more concerned about the inventory. Offline is still okay. It's not unmanageable levels right now, but it's still, you know, enough that the Q1 of this year will be more muted. Cyclically also, it's not, you know, too bad, but It should be manageable by April, May. As we enter Q2, it should be okay. We don't see inventory levels to be unmanageable levels that they're not able to build by June or so.
0: Right. Navkinder, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Govan. On that note, I hope you find the phone that you desire in 2024, if you so desire. That's it from me then. See you tomorrow. That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at at feedbackatthecore.in and thank you once again for listening.